This is the sixth talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled Stage 6, Kenosis, recorded July 20th, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning we're going to talk about the sixth stage in a series of seven stages of the spiritual path. And the sixth stage is kenosis, which I will define a little bit later here. But the whole path actually leads to this stage. So it's a key stage in the spiritual path. And just to review briefly, we have talked about uh, five stages so far, and we said that the transition between each stage is characterized by three things. A crisis, exhaustion, and guidance. And someone who begins on a spiritual path usually begins uh, as a worldly seeker. In fact, there is no other choice here but to be a spiritual or a worldly seeker. And they, for some reason, face some crisis or the worldly seeking gets exhausted the worldly pleasures just uh, aren't as enticing anymore. They feel like their life isn't going anyplace. And then through some sort of guidance, they have this awakening of faith, this kind of intuition that maybe there's more to life than what meets the eye. And maybe there is some other transcendent dimension in which true happiness could be found. So this is the uh, first grace, this awakening of faith, and it comes out of this crisis exhaustion with a little guidance. And then the seeker begins an investigation of various teachings, of various traditions, of various paths. And in the beginning, usually, most seekers think that they then can do it completely on their own. And usually, through this investigation, they begin to realize this is deeper and more radical than they had first imagined, and they're going to need some guidance on the path. And so they uh, find eventually a teacher or teachings or a tradition, and they settle down with that, and that's then going to become their path. And this is the second grace, this finding your teacher or teachings. And then in the first part of uh, trying to do the practices of the tradition that you found, uh, usually most seekers become embroiled in an inner conflict. The old self is still attracted to uh, worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures, but this budding new spiritual self is trying to uh, be disciplined about the practices and so forth. So a conflict goes on back and forth, back and forth, described in many traditions as spiritual warfare, and eventually it gets resolved in a new unification of the self, the, a new identity. You become a spiritual seeker, and spiritual seeking becomes the uh, priority in your life. And it's important to note that this doesn't happen just by an act of will, of resolution, the way you might make a New Year's resolution. It usually comes because you enter into what uh, St. John of the Cross called a dark night, where worldly pleasures now completely dry up for you. So even if you wanted to go back, uh, you don't have any choice. It just doesn't uh, do it for you anymore. So you become a mystic, as I said about myself anyway, by default. There's no, there's no choice but to go forward to keep pursuing this path. You just can't go back. And that is uh, a grace. Uh, the, that's the third grace, this entering this dark night. And then you really begin your path in earnest. And as I said, you, using this image of a sailor, now you're ready to sail out of the harbor, out onto the open sea and you enter the stage of the purification of self, where you really get into your practices, meditation, inquiry, uh, moral precepts, devotion, and you work very hard at these practices, trying to attain insights that will free you from attachments, and it's uh, relatively successful. You can have insights, and they will free you from attachments. But at some point, you realize that your own efforts aren't enough that something else has been operating all along in this, but it becomes very apparent, and that is what, at least in the Western traditions and in Hinduism, is called grace. Your own efforts uh, are important up to a point, but there's something else, something that comes from the divine side, the transcendent side, that is grace. And so you have to learn to rely on that. To, again, let go of your own self-will. And this surrendering of self-will, then, encourages the illuminations of the heart. These 
consolations, as they're called in some traditions, experiences of bliss, experiences of beauty, uh, even Gnostic flashes. And the more you learn to let go of your own self-will, and the more you become surrendered to the will of God, if you're speaking Western traditions, uh, the more this begins to happen to you. And your whole practice becomes quite effortless. It's not that you stop doing inquiry and meditation and practicing morality, but this uh, wind of grace is now filling your sails, and so it's carrying you along, so you don't feel like it's a great effort to do it. It's a joy to do them. And finally, you reach the point that uh, Brother Lawrence described this way. He was a Christian mystic. He says, After offering myself entirely to God, I renounced, for the sake of his love, everything other than God. And I began to live as if only he and I existed in the world. So you get to this point where your focus is on the divine, your focus is on enlightenment, and that has become the complete priority in your life, and you have this sense that that's all that exists. There's just you, and then everything else is God. Everything else is a manifestation of God. And that's the situation you find yourself in, then at the end of the stage of illumination of the heart. And this is wonderful, but it's still not the end of the path. <coughs> it's not gnosis, and it's not union with the divine, which if you're speaking from a bhakti devotional point of view is uh, the goal, because the delusion of I and other still remains here. When Brother Lawrence says he lived as, as if only he and God existed, we still have this separation, this distinction between I and other. And this becomes the final obstacle to the path, actually. And here's how Rumi, the great Sufi poet, put it. He says, with God, two eyes cannot find room. You say I, and he says I. He possesses such gentleness that were it possible, he would die for you so that duality might vanish. But since it is impossible for him to die, you die so that he may manifest himself to you and then duality may vanish. So, here having surrendered everything to God, the final demand of the spiritual path is to surrender yourself, that very self that has now surrendered everything else. But there's a little trick here. This, you find, is impossible to do. And we touched upon this uh, last time, but it's very important to understand this because this gets to the paradox that is the, at the heart of all mystical paths, mystical traditions. So why is it impossible to surrender yourself? Well, the paradox is that in reality there is no self. The self is a delusion. This is why Ramana Maharshi, the great Hindu mystic of this century, describing where the path of inquiry leads, and he says this, If one inquires, for whom is their bondage and liberation, it will be seen they are for me. If one inquires, who am I, one will see that there is no such thing as the I. So here you are trying to find yourself, if you're taking the path of Janana, the path of inquiry, you're trying to find that self, and there is no self there to find. The same thing is true in uh, other traditions as well. For instance, in the uh, Diamond Sutra, the Buddha is recommending to Subhuti, one of his most advanced disciples, uh, that all bodhisattvas should take the bodhisattva vow. The bodhisattva vow is to uh, give up the quest for nirvana for yourself and instead devote your time to delivering all beings from samsara. And so he recommends this highly, says this is the essence of the path. But then he says, giving a higher teaching, and yet, Subhuti, if the full truth is realized, one would know that not a single sentient being has ever been delivered. And why, Subhuti? Because there are no sentient beings to be delivered, and there is no selfhood that can begin the practice of seeking to attain noble wisdom or enlightenment. 
very important. I said at the very beginning of this series that teachings are stage-specific. So on the one hand, the Buddha says you should take this vow and so forth to deliver all beings, and that is a very good teaching, a very powerful practice if you do that. But there are always higher teachings. So he's giving you here the highest teaching. There are no sentient beings to be delivered. In Sufism, generally, when you read the great Sufi mystics, they'll say that uh, knowledge of God, gnosis of God, is dependent upon this fana, I believe it's pronounced, the passing away or the ceasing of the existence of the self. But Ibn Arabi, the great sheikh of sheikhs, has, again, a higher teaching. He writes, The knowledge of God does not presuppose the ceasing of existence, for things have no existence, and what does not exist cannot cease to exist. For the ceasing to be implies positing of existence, and that is polytheism. Then if thou knowest thyself without existence, or ceasing to be, then thou knowest God, and if not, then not. This reference to polytheism here is, uh, relates to the great confession of faith in Islam is La ilaha illallah, which uh, exoterically means there are no gods but Allah. But it can be read, and it is read by Sufis, as meaning there is nothing but God. So the greatest sin in Islam is to posit a partner with God. Uh, so if you set up any other god besides God, this is called shirk, is it? How, how do you press that? Shirk? So this is polytheism, and that's the, one of the worst things uh, in, in the Islamic tradition. Well, for the Sufis, deposit anything besides God is polytheism, is shirk. Do you see what I mean? So he's saying if you, if you uh, assume that you have to cease to be in order to become enlightened, you're positing something other than God. You're positing some self that has to cease. But there is nothing other than God. So there's nothing to cease. If there's no I, no self, then there's no God conceived as another. There's no self, but there's no God. Because they share the same boundary at this stage that you've reached anyway in your practice. When Brother Lawrence says, uh, I got to the point where only I and God existed in the whole world, if you think of this as a circle drawn on a blackboard, let's say, and the inside of the circle is Brother Lawrence and the outside is God and there's nothing else, but if that boundary is not real, it's imaginary, and we take it away, the inside vanishes, but also the outside vanishes as well. You see what I mean? This is how Lali Shori, the great saint of Kashmir, puts it. She's talking about this state where this becomes apparent, obvious. She says, There all worlds and thoughts, as well as Shiva and Shakti, become quiet. Shiva's uh, the name of God in her tradition. Shiva and Shakti is the power of God. So there all worlds and thoughts, as well as Shiva and Shakti, become quiet. In that state, there is no knowledge, no meditation, no Shiva, no Shakti. All that remains is that. Oh, Lali, you are that. So, no gods, no Shiva, no anything separate. This is why uh, Rumi, who, of course, wrote about God all the time, the devotion to God, he was a, a bhakti, finally says, I am he who carves idols from his image. But when the time of union comes, then I smash the idols. Everybody get that image? He he's, uh, talks about God. He set up idols. But when we reach this stage of the path, you have to smash all those idols. Uh, Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic, writes about his breakthrough, as he calls Gnosis or Enlightenment. And he says, in the breaking through, when I come to be free of will of myself and of God's will and of all his works and of God himself, then I receive such riches that God, as he is God, and as he performs all his divine works, cannot suffice me. For in this breaking through, I receive that God and I are one. No separation, no difference. 
So it's impossible to attain union with what you already are. Your body can't attain union with your body. Right? And even in the Buddhist tradition, where they have no uh, concept of God and attaining union with God, but they do have the concept of Buddha mind, enlightened mind, the Buddha nature, as being something other, something that you're going to attain, something that you're going to become one with. The whole path is predicated on that. You're set out to find your Buddha nature. But Huang Po, great Chinese Buddha, says, you have always been one with the Buddha. So do not pretend you can attain to this oneness by various practices. How can you attain to uh, oneness with what you already are? Does everybody see the paradox in this? So you're stuck here in, at this stage of the path. The, the demand is surrender yourself. Give up yourself and you'll attain enlightenment, union. And yet you can't do it. And there's a very good reason you can't do it because what you want to surrender doesn't exist and that what you're going to attain union with doesn't exist as an other. And in fact, what's happened here and what we haven't realized and still don't actually realize at this stage of the path because you're still struggling with this paradox is that seeking itself has been the problem from the very beginning. Whether it's worldly seeking or spiritual seeking, it is the seeking itself that creates the illusion of self, which we then come to believe is real, and so therefore it becomes a delusion. In the East, they have a, a wonderful example of this involving a whirling firebrand, but closer to home, you perhaps have seen the same thing, uh, whirling a sparkler at night on the 4th of July. I, we used to do this as kids. You take a sparkler, it has to be night so it's nice and dark, and you whirl it around like this, and you get a big ring. It looks like it's hanging there in space if you whirl it nice and steady and fast. It looks like you could reach out your hand, you know, and grab this ring, like on a merry-go-round where you grab the ring. But, of course, there's no ring there. The ring is being created by this activity of whirling. And if you stop the whirling, the ring vanishes. So it's this, in this same way, the seeking itself is creating this illusion that someone is seeking. Another analogy would be uh, if you went out in the street there, nice sunny day today, and you were standing there in the street, and you looked down and you saw your shadow. You noticed your shadow, and then you started walking down the street, and you noticed your shadow was following you. And you walk a little faster, and your shadow's following you. And you start to go a little faster to get away from your shadow, and it starts going faster, and pretty soon you're running down the street trying to get away from your shadow, but your shadow is chasing you. This is an illusion that the shadow is chasing you. How would you end the illusion is stop running, and the shadow stops chasing you. Cease the activity, and then the illusion vanishes that the shadow is chasing you. Are you following what I'm saying? So this is why Meister Eckhart wrote of God, the more one seeks you, the less one finds you. If you do not seek him, then you will find him. And Ramana Maharshi says, your effort is the bondage. Meaning the same thing, your effort is the bondage. So if this is all true, then we have to ask, well, so what's been the point of a spiritual path? <laughs> Why do all these practices? Why put all this effort into meditation and inquiry and practicing precepts and devotion and so forth? And again, we have to understand the trouble is here, we can't help seeking. It's not a question of will. As the Bhagavad Gita says, we are all born into delusion. If you are an I... You are already deluded. That's the definition of being an I. If you feel you are a born being, you are deluded. In the uh, Christian tradition, it's being born uh, with original sin. That's the mystical interpretation of orig original sin. It's an original error, original misperception. We are born deluded. And because we are born deluded, we are born unhappy. Because delusion is suffering. But we have this intuition that happiness is possible. 
So from the get-go, from your very first breath, from the very first cry the baby gives, the baby is seeking happiness. Seeking a happiness it knows intuitively, innately does exist, but doesn't seem to be present. So we are born seeking, and in the beginning we all start seeking worldly things to make us happy. Worldly pleasures, worldly satisfactions, and so forth. And then when we go on a spiritual path, we're seeking spiritual things. But this seeking is going on. We're driven to seek this happiness, and you can test this for yourself. Stop seeking if you think you can do it. For anything, that means. When you go home after uh, this morning session here, go home and sit down and just stop seeking for anything. See if you can do it. Watch your mind. Watch your heart. You'll find seeking arises. So in the beginning, we seek happiness from worldly things. But in that pursuit of happiness, uh, there's no opportunity for any wisdom because worldly things are endless. Worldly seeking has no end. There's always more to seek and more to get. And you get it and you're happy for a little while. You get a little taste of happiness, contentment, and so forth. And then because it's all impermanent, it goes away. And so you continue seeking and seeking and seeking. It's a bottomless pit. The difference between spiritual seeking and engaging in spiritual practices is that first, spiritual practices wean you from this worldly seeking. They wean you from it through giving you insights into the futility of that worldly seeking. So you see for yourself how futile it is to seek after impermanent things. And it's through that insight, through that uh, direct experience, that you start giving that up. And spiritual practices give you glimpses of true happiness. These glimpses of bliss, of beauty, uh, and so forth. So you get glimpses of a happiness that lies outside of the realm of worldly seeking. And there's another difference between spiritual seeking and worldly seeking. In worldly seeking, the goals keep expanding. They get more elaborate. They get more complicated. So you get a little bit of money, you need more money. You get a little bit of power, you need more power. You get a little bit of pleasure, you need more pleasure. So this is why wealthy people, their lives don't get more simple, they get more complicated. They need more and more and more. Spiritual seeking gets simpler and simpler and simpler. It focuses your attention on one goal enlightenment or union with the divine or whatever. And as you move on a spiritual path, you find your life gets simpler, your desires, your wants, your yearnings get simpler. It all gets boiled down into this one focus, one goal. It's like putting all your eggs into one basket. So you're going to gamble everything on happiness from this one source. A little story that, that actually illustrates this in the early days uh, of my youth, when I was in New York, I hung around with all these jazz musicians, and in, intermixed with that world was a world of heroin junkies and so forth. And I was once talking to this heroin junkie, and he said, I'm no different from you straight people. He said, you straight people wake up in the morning, and you have all these things you have to have, and you spend all day trying to get all these things. You need television sets, you need houses, you need cars, you need all this stuff. He says, I wake up, I have one thing I need. I just need my fix. So my life is much simpler. But we're no different. And there was a lot of truth to what he was saying. So in a certain way, it's becoming like a junkie. You're a God junkie, though, not a heroin junkie. You become a, a addicted to the divine. And then ultimately... The instructions of the path have been stop seeking happiness in worldly things. And then as you get into a spiritual path and you start having these blissful experiences and so forth, then the instruction becomes, well, those are consolations, but those are still experiences. Those are still ephemeral. Stop seeking happiness in them. That's still not the ultimate divine. And then finally, the instruction is stop seeking, period. You see how this works, this progression here? 
But then, again, this too is paradoxical. This is why Zen master Tseng San says, when you try to stop activity to achieve passivity, your very effort fills you with activity. Right? If you say, okay, I'm going to stop seeking now, well, you're making an effort to stop seeking. You're making an effort to make no effort. Everybody see the paradox here? So, no matter which way you turn, you're between a rock and a hard place. You're doomed to fail. Whatever you try. And, and none of your practices anymore will work. You might do uh, inquiry, you might do meditation, you might sit there and try and be very passive in meditation. But you find yourself saying, okay, now I'm, I'm going to give up effort. Now I'm going to give up effort. That very I that's going to give up the effort is, of course, the I that is an illusion, that must be surrendered. But there it is, giving up effort. So you're a little bit, again, like this sailor out on the open sea. And here you've been sailing along, as I said last time, through all these fabulous isles and having these magical experiences. And you've been expecting enlightenment to appear just over the horizon. You're finally going to get to the continent of enlightenment. And you've been sailing along, and suddenly you're uh, out of reach of these magical isles, but there's no enlightenment over the horizon. And suddenly your rudder breaks, your sails are shredded, they fall down, the boat is leaking. You're not just adrift here like you were in the, in the uh, two stages ago where you had this crisis of faith. The boat is sinking. You go to look for the can, the can has got holes in it. You can't bail the water out. There's nothing you can do. Absolutely nothing you can do. So it's in this situation, you have no choice but to surrender and surrender unconditionally. You see where the path has brought you? There is just no choice. It's not a question you want to surrender, volunteer to surrender to give up this effort. It just, nothing's working. There is nothing more to do. So this total involuntary surrender is what precipitates the stage or state of kenosis. So what is kenosis here? Kenosis actually is a kind of technical word. It's a Greek word. And I found it, uh, I had no word to describe what happened to me. And then when I went to live with Dr. Wolf, reading through some of his books, I discovered this word and I said, oh, well, this, this really applies. So I, I adopted the word at that point. And it was originally employed by the Christians. Uh, it means to empty oneself. And there are two meanings in Christianity, early Christianity. One was the act of God emptying himself to become man. So the idea is God empties himself of divinity to become Jesus. But it also has the meaning of a follower uh, of uh, Jesus or a follower, a disciple of God, emptying him or herself of selfhood in order to be filled with the divine, in order to make room for the divine. And of course, that's more the meaning we have here. Uh, here's what Teresa of Avila says about this. For it is quite certain that when we empty ourselves of all that is creature and rid ourselves of it for the love of God, that same Lord will fill our souls with himself. So this is this idea of becoming totally empty, kenosis. But this is also found in other traditions, this uh, description of emptiness. For instance, here's Ananda Moyamai, great Hindu mystic of this century. And she's talking about the last stage of the spiritual path. She says, no matter what anyone's line of approach, at first there is torment and perplexity one is unable to find. After that comes a state of suspense, emptiness as it were. One cannot penetrate within, neither does one derive satisfaction from worldly enjoyment. So this is what I'm describing here, this idea that there's nothing you can do. You can't go forward and you can't go back. You're stuck. This actual stage of kenosis can vary in uh, length of time and in intensity. The shortest description I've ever heard was from Dr. Wolf himself. And his kenosis lasted, I don't know, about three seconds, maybe. He finally got to the point on his path where he had this 
astonishing, what he called a noetic realization, that it was really true. I am already that which I am seeking. Therefore, give up the search. And he said when he realized this, what, this was not enlightenment or anything, but it, it came home to him so powerfully that the search just stopped. And he said, I didn't expect anything. But then the heavens opened up, as he put it. So there's this moment of suspense, of emptiness, of not seeking, not searching. Just the briefest moment. My own kenosis lasted for a period of three to four days. It deepened through this period. But whatever the length of time is irrelevant, the important thing, the most important thing, is that through walking a spiritual path, you've burned all your bridges behind you. So there's no turning back. If there's any turning back, then if you have an escape route, then you won't be stuck in this place. So you may be doing your spiritual practice, and there are, will be times while you're walking a spiritual path where nothing will seem to be working, where everything will seem to dry up, sometimes called a desert experience or an experience of aridity and so forth. These are sort of little foretastes of kenosis, but the trouble is you haven't exhausted all seeking yet. If you get here and you say, oh, well, I'm stuck. You know, I think I'll go back to law school and change course and become a lawyer and give up this spiritual stuff. You haven't burned your bridges. There's some option left to you. So one of the things a spiritual path does is through walking a spiritual path, you're burning your bridges behind you. Here's a sample from my own account from my book, Naked Through the Gate. I thought of going back to L.A., but to what? There was nothing left of the past, and I couldn't envision anything in the future. My mind refused to produce any images at all. Time had stopped, and I was suspended over a great nothingness. Notice how close this description is, for instance, to Ananda Moyamai's, where she says, uh, it's a, a, a state of suspense, emptiness as it were. One cannot penetrate within, neither does one derive satisfaction from worldly enjoyment. I had never read Ananda Moyamai. I had no idea what was happening to me, by the way, at this stage in my spiritual path. But the descriptions are almost identical here. Something else about this is very important. I said, I couldn't envision anything in the future. My mind refused to produce any images at all. Part of what kenosis is, is the mind ceases. Thoughts slow way down and for periods of time cease altogether. They just aren't arising. This isn't a result of your sterling meditative practice. They just aren't there. And in fact, if anything, it feels a little uneasy, you know? I mean, how are you going to get by in the world if thoughts aren't arising? The Christian mystics call this entering the cloud of unknowing. Unknowing. The mind doesn't know anything. And it's essential, because as Zen master Wang Po says, if you wish to understand know that a sudden comprehension comes when the mind has been purged of all the clutter of conceptual and discriminatory thought activity. This is why Ibn Arabi says the whole path leads to perplexity. True guidance means being guided to bewilderment that he might know that the whole affair of God is perplexity. Not being guided to knowledge, not being guided to all this great wisdom you think you're going to have. You know, you, you think you're going to sit up there with all this wisdom and people are going to come to you and you're going to dispense this wisdom. Quite the opposite. Guided to absolute stupidity. Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching says, you know, my mind is totally blank like an infant even before it's learned to smile. Not only thoughts dry up, cease, but desire, feelings, will, all that dries up. The, it's not just the intellectual side of it, but we might say the psychological side of it comes to a halt. You know, in Buddhism, they describe 
traditionally the end of the path as nirvana, particularly the Theravadian Buddhists, which means literally extinction. So the word comes from the idea of blowing out a, a candle or something. It's extinction of desire and delusion. Truly speaking, the word nirvana here is not describing enlightenment, it's <clears throat> describing kenosis. It's describing arriving at this state where it's just all extinguished. Nothing's arising. This is why Zen master Seng San says, their great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. Literally, no preferences are arising. I go on to describe in the book during this period, uh, I was driving along and I had a leak, a gas leak developed. And I could, uh, could smell the gas and I pulled into a gas station and I realized the gas was leaking out over this hot engine. And I got out and I uh, called a repair place in town and they sent somebody out. But all this, I could care less whether the car blew up or not. No preference whatsoever. These are not sort of exaggerated poetical descriptions, see. These are descriptions, actual descriptions of this stage of the path. This is why uh, Lali Shwari sings, To be dead to desire while remaining alive is true knowledge. O Lali, die while remaining alive. And this is probably the most common and ancient metaphor for kenosis, this idea of a spiritual death or mystical death. It dates all the way back to shamanic times. All shamanic initiations involve a, a spiritual death and a resurrection. The, the shaman is killed by uh, mentor shamans or, or demons, and often their, their bodies are cut up and boiled in pots and uh, things like that, and then they're put back together, and now they're shamans. These are uh, mythic ways of describing, though, uh, experience. Not just mythology, it's a... Uh, a sort of a fancy story, but ways of describing the profundity of this experience. This image of spiritual death has been carried down to all modern traditions. The Sufis say, die before you die. That's a famous slogan runs all through Sufism. Teresa of Vila compares the little self to a butterfly, or a, rather to a silkworm that's going to be transformed into a butterfly. But uh, as she says, before this transformation takes place, or what is a prerequisite for this transformation, she says, but note very carefully, daughters, the silkworm has of necessity to die, and it is this which will cost you most. And here's how Zen master Hakyun describes the final stages of the Zen path. Like a man hanging over a precipice, he is completely at a, at a loss what to do next. Except for occasional feelings of uneasiness and despair, it is like death itself. You see all these descriptions from these different traditions? They're all pointing to the same thing, expressing the same thing. Here's again a passage from my own account. For the next two days I traveled like this through a void. Only the barest whisper of thoughts and feelings ruffled its surface. Otherwise I was empty. There was no sadness or depression in it, just a kind of strange absurdity. I often felt death was close at hand, but I was not in the least suicidal. I neither welcomed my demise nor was frightened of it. Instead, I watched like a disinterested scientist observing an insect whose brain has been removed. I wanted to read the account and not just tell it from memory so you can see how specifically this wording the same wording crops up over and over again. And as I said, I had no idea uh, what was happening to me and, and uh, hadn't read any of these other accounts, or if I had, I'd totally forgotten them, because this didn't feel like some glorious spiritual thing. And the most extensive treatment of this kenosis is given by, perhaps uh, at least that I know of, by St. John of the Cross, which he calls the spiritual dark night of the soul. In his terminology, there's several dark nights. We talked about an earlier one, the uh, dark night of the senses, which marks the transition from the unification of self into the purification of mind. But this is the spiritual dark night, the most profound and the last one, and here's how he describes it. Here's some of what he says, because he goes on and on. 
For the spiritual and sensual desires are put to sleep and mortified, so that they can experience nothing, either divine or human. The affections of the soul are oppressed and constrained. The imagination is bound and can make no useful reflection. The memory is gone. The understanding is in darkness, unable to understand anything. And hence the will likewise is arid and constrained, and all the faculties are void and useless. And in addition to all of this, a thick and heavy cloud is upon the soul. It is in this kind of darkness that the soul says, here it traveled securely. Now, this is very interesting. So he's described this state that sounds quite horrible, where the mind is in this darkness, the imagination doesn't work, no feelings are arise, arising, you don't feel anything particularly divine in the state, nothing's happening, constrained and so forth. And then he says, but here the soul traveled securely. So he goes on to amplify that. He says, For in such a way does this dark night absorb and immerse the soul in itself, and so near does it bring the soul to God that it protects and delivers it from all that is not God. For this soul is now, as it were, undergoing a cure in order that it may regain its health, its health being God himself. Now, this is important because in the last stage of the spiritual path, in the illumination of the heart, you've had all these wonderful experiences. I said bliss and experiences of the beauty of the world and even Gnostic flashes and so forth. But none of these are God in the mystical sense of God, which is not an other. All of these are experiences. All of these are phenomena, no matter how profound, no matter how enjoyable, no matter how, how wonderful. So, in a certain sense, you are being deprived even of these spiritual consolations. You're being deprived of everything that is not God. So, you're, you're totally secure because there's nothing here to distract you. Do you, you see what he's getting at? There's absolutely nothing to distract you. Nothing to draw the attention out. Nothing for the attention to glom onto. None of these ephemeral uh, experiences blissful experiences, nothing. So this kenosis is actually a grace. It's the uh, fifth grace. Because when there's nothing that you can see, feel, experience, whatever, there is no seeking. There's nothing to seek. There just isn't anything there. And so what happens? Well, Ramana Maharshi puts it this way. He says, the mind returns to its source. The mind returns to its source. The Buddhists would talk about uh, the mind comes to rest in its own nature. In other words, all your life, that mind, that attention has been looking out there for something out there, looking for happiness out there, whether in worldly, the worldly realm or in the spiritual realm. Some God out there, some God up there. Or some God, the ground of being. Well, some God, you know, all this or whatever. But always outside. The attention's always focused outside. And so it's never looking in the right place. So it stops. It just ceases to look outside. And then what happens? Well, there's an analogy. Supposing you'd heard about water. And people are trying to get you to understand what water was. And... They took you down to the ocean, and you look out over the ocean, and you see all these waves. And you keep thinking, water is waves. And people say, no, the water isn't the waves. The waves are just forms of water, but you don't know what they're talking about. What you see is waves. That's what's apparent. But one day, and occasionally this happens, the ocean becomes like glass. Just all waves disappear, and suddenly you look out. And now, in that contrast, you see, oh, I got it. It's not waves, it's water. Waves are nothing but the form of the water, but they are not the water itself. And the same thing happens when the mind settles down, the heart settles down. When nothing is arising, there is only consciousness itself. 
and you say, ah, that's what it is. Everything else, all other appearances, are just forms of this consciousness. You see the analogy here? This may take some time, however, because you may be in kenosis for quite a while, and you still don't get it. This is, as St. Bonaventure says, our mind, accustomed to the darkness of beings and the images of things of sense, when it glimpses the light of the supreme being, seems to itself to see nothing. It does not recognize that this very darkness is the supreme illumination of our mind. Dr. Wolf also wrote about this, almost in exactly the same terms, and he'd never read Bonaventure. He talks about when he, he realized he'd been making this subtle mistake in meditation, been searching for some subtle object out there. But it's not the object, it's the subject. It's what's doing the searching. And then he realized that from the point of view of what he called relative consciousness or deluded consciousness, this ultimate, infinite uh, consciousness must look like nothing because it's not an object. You see? It's not an object appearing. So it looks, it, it, there's nothing there. But that's the secret. If this kenosis is really complete, if it's total, and if you stay there, sooner or later, it happens. You just see. Here's how Zen master Yun Man described it. The time will come when your mind will come to a stop, like an old rat who finds himself in a cul-de-sac. Then there will be a plunging into the unknown with the cry, ah, this. Wonderful, very succinct, wonderful description. And this is gnosis, or enlightenment, because the word enlightenment is a, itself a metaphor, an analogy, because it is like a bolt of light bursting out of this darkness. In the, one of the Gospels, Jesus talks about when the Son of Man comes, it'll be like lightning that lights up the sky from one end to the other. And then the passage goes on, and it, it's a prophecy of the second coming and all that. But this is obviously a description of Gnosis here. And modern scholars think that all this prophecy business was something added quite later. They probably took an original saying of Jesus's and then didn't understand it, so they amplified it. It's a wonderful description like lightning that lights up the sky from one end to the other. Have you ever been on a totally dark night and suddenly there's this bolt of lightning and you literally you can see from one end of the horizon to the other? It always comes with this instantaneous, sudden quality. Uh, Catherine of Genoa puts it this way. She says, this knowledge comes from God with a rush. It's another great way of describing it. So the virtue associated with this stage is mercy. Not your mercy, but God's mercy to you, so to speak. It's the final act of mercy because in this act of mercy, this what's coming from the divine side destroys the distinction between these two sides. It obliterates it, wipes it out. So you might say it's God's final act, God's final service to you before God vanishes, disappears. Boom! When that happens, the, the distinction between God and the devotee is gone. And this is the final guidance, so to speak. It's in this, this state of kenosis that there's no guidance in terms of pointing. The guidance is a ceasing to point anywhere. So I put guidance in quotes here. And then what happens after that We'll talk about next time, because that will be the final stage, Gnosis. But I want to say a final word about the importance of this teaching, about Kenosis. Uh, in a certain sense, there may be a danger, actually, to giving this teaching, uh, sort of giving away the, you know, a magician giving away his tricks, because so, Todd knows about uh, However, I think that uh, probably it doesn't matter because a lot of teachings, when you're not ready to hear them, that you don't hear them very deep level anyway. So they go in one ear and out the other, which is a grace, which is a protection for you. It's a good thing. But it's also, 
uh, important to know this because we do come to s other stages on a spiritual path that are like this, I said, a sort of preliminary uh, little kenosis, and they don't feel at all spiritual. It feels like something's gone wrong. It can even feel a little frightening, uh, certainly upsetting, but even a little frightening. And the tendency is to turn away. And if you know that actually the whole spiritual path leads to something like this, then when you get to those smaller versions of it, instead of turning away, the trick is to dive into them, to surrender into them, to let go into them. When you get to the point where you get very confused about spiritual teachings and your mind just won't work anymore and you can't figure anything out, and you get sort of disgusted and discouraged, that's the time to just let go, go right into that. Or you've been meditating and you've been having all these blissful experiences and then you go through a period where you sit there and nothing's happening in meditation. You wonder, what happened to all my blissful experiences? That's the time to let go of this idea that it's all about having blissful experiences. Just let go into what's there, right there. This tendency to run away is illustrated by a wonderful story of Rumi's. He talks about a man who heard about this magical, majestic lion in a far country. And he heard about it and just captured his imagination so much. And this was a very difficult journey to make. And he sold all his goods and his valuables. And he uh, plowed it into making this journey. And he traveled through all these hardships. And there's one of these stories you could, you know, go on and tell for a long time. And he finally gets to the forest where this lion lives. And he gets uh, the guides taken right up to the edge of the meadow where the lion is. And he gets there and he looks out and he sees this lion. It's just so awesome. It's so overpowering. And he suddenly stops, and he won't go forward. And the, the people around him say, look, you've, you've traveled all this way. You've made all these sacrifices to come, and now you're right here, and now you won't go forward. And it, it, this happens. It's very possible. You get to this point, and you made all these sacrifices on the spiritual path, but now you're actually facing the lion. But the trick is, having come all this way, just walk right up to that lion. Stick your head in his mouth. He'll do the rest. <laughs> there's one other value to giving this teaching because again it illustrates what we started this whole series with that teachings are stage specific and when you hear teachings like Ramana Maharshi saying make no effort your effort is the bondage you have to put that into context and I say this particularly now because recently a lot of uh, these sorts of teachings become quite popular in this country. Uh, Dzogchen teachings, equivalent teachings in, from the Tibetan tradition, where it's uh, Buddhahood without meditation, Buddhahood without effort, and so forth. And then there are workshops around. You go to Dzogchen workshops, and they tell you, don't make any effort, just sit here, and so forth. You don't need all these spiritual practices and whatnot. Totally taken out of context, and if you read these great Dzogchen masters, you'll find that, of course, like everybody else's teachings, they're full of contradictions. And so Longchenpa, who's one of the great Dzogchen masters, who talks about at the end of the path, there's no meditation and no practices. But he also says, anybody who says that you can attain Buddha without practices is under the delusion of Mara, who's the god of delusion, under the sway of Mara. So the explanation of the, this is that these teachings are stage-specific. And in fact... And in fact, it's very important to practice and to put a lot of effort into practice. And I have to qualify that because as you get used to practicing, you find that there's actually skillful effort to put in. But in terms of, let's say, the dedication and devotion to the path, because you cannot exhaust all effort until you use it all up. If you just, you know, put a little dribble of effort in here, you never exhaust effort. You're holding back. You have to throw yourself totally into the path in order to exhaust that. You have to seek completely with total dedication in order to exhaust that seeking. So don't use these uh, teachings like your effort is the bondage to rationalize being lazy, just plain laziness and not doing your practices. It's only when you arrive at this last crisis, of kenosis, a total crisis, when all effort is exhausted, that you get the final guidance. So keep on trucking. You might follow Lolly Shore's example. 
She says, looking neither left nor right, I pursued him. So she wasn't distracted looking left or right by other things. Single-pointedly pursued him. I pushed myself to my limits in my quest. What did she do? She exhausted everything. Pushed herself to her limits. Finally, I meditated on him in silence. Silence is another big term uh, that crops up in talking about kenosis, inner silence. And found him within myself. She pushed herself to limits until she got to the state of absolute silence, nothing arising. And then she found him within herself. So that's a wonderful one, five-line description of the whole path and, and the principle of it. <coughs> Pursue it single-mindedly. Don't look to the left or right. Push yourself to your limits. You'll end up in the space of silence, and boom, there it is. So are there any questions or comments? Yes. Joe, are you talking about two words, kenosis and gnosis? Uh, yes, let me make that clear. They sound very much alike. They are two words. Kenosis is spelled in English with a K. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. -S. Gnosis is actually spelled with a G, but you don't pronounce the G. G-N-O-S-I-S. And gnosis is the technical word I use for enlightenment. Uh, and I picked that mostly because it's pretty tradition-free. In other words, if you talk about enlightenment, people usually think you're talking about Buddhism, or if you talk about self-realization, that sounds more like Hinduism and so forth. Do you have periods where you come, come back and have doubt at all? Or once you reach that... Once you reach gnosis, is it, that's it, and, and it never falters? We're going to talk about this next time, so I don't want to get too far into it. But uh, yes, um, a good way to describe this is something Ramana Maharshi said. So let me try it out on you. He tried it out on one of his disciples. Uh, are you a goat? No. No. You certain you're not a goat? Yes. It never occurs to you that you might be a goat? You never have doubts about the fact you're not a goat? No. no. Okay. But do you go around thinking all day, I'm not a goat, I'm not a goat? No. no. Okay. That's what Gnosis is like. It no more occurs to me to think that I am a self, soul, or something like that, than it occurs to you to think you're a goat. It just doesn't arise. And there's the same kind of certainty in that sense. The questioning almost seems silly, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it is, yes. Abdullah. Uh, I have actually a couple more questions. One is a, uh, about spirituality. Mm -hmm. And that is, we are used to always, you know, if we don't know where we're going, then we'll end up where we're going. You know? I mean, it's the idea of we are trained to be not aimless. Right. So sometimes if I have an idea of spirituality, which probably everyone does, to a certain extent, probably everybody is different. Uh, I would like to know, can you define it? I said earlier in the course of these talks that on a mystical spiritual path, and I always mean this implicitly, the aim, the goal is enlightenment, gnosis. That's the North Star by which you steer your course. Or you could call it union with God, or whatever way you want to express that. The spiritual path has an end has an end in this sense, and the end is enlightenment, gnosis, union with God. So a mystical spiritual path is a path that takes you to the gnosis of God. That's what it is. If it's not taking you there, that's not a mystical path. So then spirituality is a path? Spirituality is a path, because, yes. you know, it's always you hear, especially sometimes on TV, when somebody saw, looked at, uh, probably what's happening on Mars and they get the spiritual feeling you know well and, uh, how is that fit in there in our culture um, the word spirituality has become very broad it can mean an awful lot of things to different people so this is why I started suddenly getting technical on you and started saying a mystical path to make this point clear I usually use these two words interchangeably. That's just my definition. 
But I do think that it's legitimate to talk about people having spiritual experiences, spiritual feelings, even if they aren't on a spiritual path. Almost every human being at some time in their life has some spiritual feelings and experience and so forth because, you know, it's native to us. It's actually inherent in us. It's our own innate nature sort of occasionally breaking through the veils. So people can just be out in nature and they might not even call it a spiritual experience. They might be a materialist who doesn't believe in any of this stuff, but they'll come back and they'll describe this wonderful sort of experience they had of oneness or something. Now that, from my point of view, is a, sp a spiritual experience. But just because you're having spiritual experiences does not mean you're on a spiritual path. And that is the difference. Because these are just sort of random experiences breaking through in your life. There is no aim. There is no path. There is no direction. Now, I have to say one other thing here, that in a certain sense, this uh, is a shaman's trick setting up this North Star. And this is what I've tried to indicate. You walk this whole path, or let's go back to the image of the boat sailing for the, the, the far shore. It's a very common image, for instance, particularly in Buddhism, to, to go to the far shore, the shore of Nirvana, you know, to cross the ocean of samsara and all that. And you're lured out of samsara. You're lured out of delusion by this promise that you're going to get to this new land, this new continent. And what really is happening is you're being lured out so your boat can sink, so you can get stranded, and you'll find out that you've never left. It was just a dream to wake up to the fact that you were uh, never really in samsara. There is no samsara. So there is a little, uh, a little shaman's trick involved in this. But I would say, just as a, as a straightforward definition, a mystical spiritual path is a path that has enlightenment, gnosis, or union with God as its end, as its goal. Another question with, at the end you mention one get to where it's consciousness. And that is, if I, from what we discussed one time, and I think in one of your writing, you talk about consciousness is where everything, it's kind of the back where everything arises in, like be it thoughts, from memories, or perceptions, or desires, or so where these things happens is consciousness. Is that how you, you define it? Well, I again use consciousness specifically to mean the ultimate nature of reality. I think our word consciousness has the least theological baggage to go with it, uh, I think you'll find that in one way or another, all traditions will use this idea to describe the ultimate reality. And it also is, in our particular culture now, something you get your hand on very easily. So what is consciousness is a very good question. And this is like a question to pursue on a spiritual path. It's the same thing as asking, what is God? For instance, in Hinduism, they describe Brahman, the, their name for ultimate reality, as pure consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. In uh, the, the Sufi interpretation of the Quranic descriptions of Allah, is he is the hearing and the seeing. Don't, they don't mean that he hears and sees everything. They mean he is the hearing and the seeing and all other facets of consciousness. Do you see what I mean? You get what I'm talking about? The Christians talk about the mind of God. All this takes place in the mind of God. You know, consciousness is a relatively new word in our English language. It was only invented a couple of centuries ago. So it doesn't pop up in early Christian writings. But they will talk about the mind of God and so forth. So in many uh, traditions, they have this sense that the ultimate reality is one way to sort of get at that is to talk about mind or consciousness or pure awareness or something like that. Now... It's a very good question to ask. So what is it? So what is it? And you can start by saying what it isn't. For instance, does it have any color? Does consciousness have a color? No. Does it uh, have any particular shape? I mean, is it round, square? So it doesn't have any color, doesn't have any shape. Does it have a sound? Does it make a particular sound? 
Does it? I mean... Feed it. What? Feed it. Feed it? Does it eat anything? A good question. Or maybe it eats everything. <laughs> yeah. so it doesn't have a color, doesn't have a shape, doesn't have any particular texture. I mean, would you describe it as sort of smooth or rough or... It's not a thing. It's not a thing. Very good. So how is God described? By mystics. God is, uh, in the Quran, is above all they can attribute to him, right? Well, it's closer to you than your gadget. Ah, and, and intimate. What could be closer to you than consciousness? In the Quran, God is two things. God is above anything that you can ascribe to God. So anything we'd say about God doesn't really stick, you know? We can't describe what color he is, what shape he is, anything like that. But God is also closer to you than your own jugular vein, which is a very nice poetic way of talking about intimacy. What is more close to you than consciousness? Right? Brahman is without attributes. Same idea. No color, no texture, no nothing, you know? Not a thing. Brahman's not a thing. God's not a thing. The Tao isn't a thing. The Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. Anything you say about the Tao is not uh, described in the true Tao. Uh, Ariagina, early great Christian mystic, said, you know, nobody knows what God is. Not even God knows what God is. God is completely ignorant of what he is. And this was very upsetting to the Orthodox, you know, this idea that God, even God doesn't know what he is. And Aragonia said, but it's true because God is not a what. So how can he know what it is? He isn't the what. If he knew what he was, he would be ignorant. He'd be deluded. But he knows he's not a what, so he knows he, he doesn't know what he is. Any more than she knows what kind of goat she is. Do you know what kind of goat you are? No. no. She uh, no idea what kind of goat she is. Why? Because she's not a goat. See? So it's the same idea here. Not a thing. Not a what. Now look at how the descriptions start to intermesh here, coming from all these different traditions, from a mystic's point of view. A, whatever this ultimate reality is, isn't a thing. It doesn't have any attributes. And yet it's totally intimate. It's the essence of all things. That's right. And it is also that in which all things arise. It encompasses, embraces all things. So what are we talking about here? Well, isn't, isn't this close to what we mean by consciousness? Has anybody ever experienced anything outside of consciousness? No one. Can consciousness be described? I mean, this is why that question, what is consciousness, would be an excellent a question to take as a focus of a practice of inquiry. The traditional one is, who am I? That's a good question. And, or who is God? Or what is consciousness? All of these questions will take you to the same place. But the, the trick is, you will not ever get a conceptual answer. And the greatest mystic in the world can never give you a conceptual answer. And if they did, they would be cheating you. And if you believe them, you'd be a fool. But you have to pursue that. You have to exhaust it. You have to really look into it, dig into it every possible way. Study it through meditation. Inquire about it logically. Every single way. And finally, all your efforts will cease and it'll just be there. Were you, uh, earlier did you have a question? No. Oh. Well, if there are no more, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around and have some tea, check out the library. Until we see each other again, peace to you all.